Christmas is not the day Jesus was born. Though we have some estimates as to the year, we don't really know the day this man, who would go on to transform our world, was born. But perhaps it shouldn't come as a surprise that no one bothered to record the birthday of a baby born in some hole on the rock side dug out for livestock with travel-weary peasants for parents. So why do Christians celebrate his birthday on December 25th? Well, one reason is, if you don't know the actual birthday of someone special to you, one option is to pick a day that is the most meaningful to your relationship with that person and celebrate it then. Why is December 25th meaningful? Because in the Roman calendar, that was the winter solstice, when the night is at its longest and the day at its shortest, the darkest day of the year. Because Christmas, its story and its significance, begins from despair. Merry Christmas and happy holidays and peace to those of you who celebrate this season for different reasons. Welcome to What Do You Mean God Speaks, where we explore important stories, ideas, and insights in Christianity. I am Paul Sung Jung, and this is our third episode, Why Christmas Starts from Despair. Christmas is a season of celebration and joy. As Christians across the world celebrate the birth of their Savior, and even people to whom Christmas has no religious significance celebrate it by getting together with their friends and families, sharing a meal and exchanging gifts. In some cultures, it is also a prime occasion for romantic rendezvous. But celebration and joy is only one side of Christmas, the one side of the story of the birth of Christ. And we miss the full story if we overlook the other side the story of hopelessness, brokenness, and gloom. Then again, that darker story has always been an inseparable part of our story, our human experience, which is threaded not only with joy, hope, and love, but also with misery, despair, and hatred. In fact, our modern festivities during this season seem to serve sometimes as a reprieve from these darker stories unfolding around us. In a way, it's like what happened in the Christmas truce of 1914 during the First World War. When Christmas arrived that year, the British, French, and the German troops all along the Western Front went into an impromptu and unofficial ceasefire. This was neither planned nor condoned by their commanders. Their governments had just rejected Pope Benedict's call to suspend the fighting during Christmas. But the guns became silent and then were slowly replaced by the singing of carols and the lights of candles. Soldiers from both sides began to venture, carefully at first, into no man's land and met up with the men they had been trying to kill just the day before. There they exchanged food, gifts, and souvenirs, held joint burial ceremonies for their dead, and then sang carols together. Afterward, a number of them played games of football, soccer for us North Americans, It was a moment of peace and humanity in the midst of the most wide-scale and sustained period of violence humanity had ever seen so far. But the killings resumed the day after that. After all, the truce was only a reprieve and war was the constant. Worse, no wide-scale truce ever happened again during the war. The high commanders of both sides strongly forbade such a thing. And as the war waged on, the heavy losses and bitter suffering hardened most soldiers against displaying such a goodwill to their foes. 
Christmas celebration today likewise can feel like a reprieve. A beautiful, magical one to be sure, which moves many people to acts of exceptional charity and compassion. And as we gather with our loved ones, enjoying that Christmas spirit and cheer, while the children experience the magic of lights, decoration, and the anticipation of the arrival of Santa Claus, we can briefly forget the darker side of our world, or at least put them aside. But those darker stories of humanity are still out there, looming just beyond the light. And sometimes like what happened during the war after that Christmas truce in 1914, even our reprieve may be taken from us. As of this recording, numerous cities and regions across the world are on lockdowns this Christmas season due to the global pandemic. Without the festivities and the company, much of the magic that held that darker story at bay each year is fainter now. And the pandemic stripped away much more than that to reveal something about us. That we seem to be terrible at listening for one thing. We were warned repeatedly that a pandemic like this was coming. That the environmental degradation of our own making has raised the chances of such an outbreak dramatically. That the social and economic inequalities in our world would make it easier to spread. Still, we were told, we can prepare for it while we have the time if we're willing to make the effort and pay the cost. The YouTube video of Bill Gates in 2015, concluding his TED Talks with the words, if we start now, we can be ready for the next epidemic, is sobering to see now in 2020. The pandemic also revealed that our most advanced governments and systems can fail us, from the ones who hit the initial outbreak to those who downplayed it or used it to fend racial and political divisions or simply failed to take the steps to prepare. Each and every time, there were things that governing bodies and leaders across the world could have done to limit the devastating effects of the pandemic, yet they failed. But it wasn't merely the governments. We all participated in this failing. Fake news and conspiracy theories run rampant on our social media. And health precautions such as masks or refraining from indoor gatherings became weapons for partisanship and feuds, so much so that wearing medical masks has been the cause of life-threatening brawls and riots. What the pandemic revealed as it locked us in our homes and stripped away much of the reprieve that Christmas usually offered over our darker stories was our human failings writ large at every level of our societies. Which is not to say there were no bright spots, as essential workers kept our world running and the health professionals and researchers worked to fight the pandemic and save lives. But when all said and done, our world is not where it should be, and more to the point, it's not where it could have been had we done better. And that's the true tragedy. Where we are are not where we could have been. After all, it is not the unavoidable suffering that truly scars us. It is the tragedy that we could have avoided when we realize things could have been different if not for our failings. Say there's this man who died from an illness in his 90s, yet he has lived a full life, one that was enriched with deep family ties and lasting friendship, whose work was meaningful to him and made a difference, however small. If he knew this man, we'd mourn his death, but we would also celebrate his life. How his death would hit us would be utterly different from how we'd experience the death of a child who died from the same illness except that she succumbed to it due to parental and societal neglect. The physical cause of death might be the same, but we'd find their death to be profoundly wrong 
It should not have happened, and it need not have happened. Her life could have been different only if we were better, wiser, more attentive, more caring. Yet, we won't break while we still think we can do it right the next time. That's when we still have hope. But what if we repeatedly fail? Each time it could have been different, but we somehow let the same tragedy repeat itself over and over. What then? What happens if he fails so repeatedly and thoroughly that we become convinced that we can't change? That we've locked ourselves in the prison of our own making, chained in our darkness so that we can only know of a world that should have been, a world that could have been, but we have cast it aside beyond our reach by our actions. If we ever find ourselves there, then... We would break. We would despair. And many of the things going around us now have us suspended precisely between these two possibilities. The hope that somehow we will eventually do it right, that we will one day reach a better world we know it can become, and the fear that it may be too late, or worse, that our own hands have already shattered that possibility beyond hope. In the West, the economic inequality continues to widen and racial and social injustice seem, despite so much effort, unremovable. And even the activism against these seem too often tinged with the same kind of hatred and prejudice they claim to fight against. Then of course, the past year has seen the rise of sheer demagoguery, bitter partisan politics, lack of representation, and most importantly, the lack of trust in each other in the political process and public discourse. All the while, tyranny and oppression run rampant, unchallenged in other parts of the world. And meanwhile, catastrophic climate change continues seemingly unabated. California seems to be constantly on fire. Plastic the size of continents float in our oceans, and around 200 species go extinct each day. Then there's a sinking sense that all of us have been a part of what has been happening, that we are participants somehow in letting them happen or may even have contributed to them. Certainly none of us have let us out of it. And of course, for Christians, it hits especially hard as the loudest religious voices among them have not offered a way forward but instead seem to have made worse the existing distrust and resentment. Gentler voices, on the other hand, seem to be ignored precisely because they are softer. And perhaps because all this has been happening throughout this Christmas season, with our usual reprieve stripped away, there is a sense of mourning in the air. Thankfully, there is still some sense of hope too. There are people out there doing good, reaching out to those in distress through organizations, churches, or even just personally, looking after the vulnerable, speaking up for those who can't, even doing little things that make the lives around them worth something. But that voice, which used to only whisper in our darkest moment, is a bit louder now. And it says something like this, Maybe it is too late. Maybe everything will fall. Maybe we should let it, because we deserve it as a people, as a nation, as a civilization. If you've ever heard this voice, you're in a place to understand the fuller story of Christmas, the story of human sin and the birth of the Savior. Now when people talk about sin today, it feels as if many of them are imagining God wagging his fingers to the naughty children of the world, or more pointedly, to the people not sitting down on church pews on Christmas Day, telling them, if you misbehave, Santa Claus won't come for you. 
Instead, you will get Krampus, a horned half-goat, half-demon figure in Central European folktale who punishes the bad children and what misbehaving amounts to, that's often not very clear. But the Christian idea of sin is much broader than that, and frankly speaking, more real. In the original Greek, which the New Testament portion of the Bible is written, sin literally means to miss the mark. Miss what mark, though, and how? Clues to that is given with another word that is often used to describe sin. Being lost. As in, we are not where we should be, where we hope to be, and worse, where we could have been. This isn't the world, the life that we hoped for and could have arrived if only we did not go astray. But we no longer know how to head to where we hope to be. And whose fault is that? Difficult to say, because our mistakes and responsibilities are all interconnected. It's hard to tell how much of it is our fault and how much of it is other people's. Everything's all tangled and we find ourselves lost in it. That's the fuller idea of sin. And the Christian story of sin isn't meant to be some morality tale to drive people to conform to some standard by threats of punishment or guilt trips. Now, it certainly has been used that way, but that isn't what the story really is about. Rather, it's a testimony, a confession of religious people claiming to be a nation of God who realize they have failed and failed profoundly. They are not what they could have been and should have been. It's the intergenerational diary of their struggle with a profound sense of despair, that everything may be too late, that they're now locked into being the kind of people they should have hated to become, creatures of empty religious habit led by hypocrites whose sense of moral and religious superiority is a sham and their standing with God is based on a lie. It's the diary of a people who's lost. And actually, it should disturb us that this is how the Bible describes the people who claim to believe in God, the forerunners of Christians. This should serve as a sober warning to the present generation. The prophetic book of Isaiah, the one that Christians believe promised the coming of Jesus Christ, opens with this message to the people of God. Let me summarize it here. This is what the Lord God says to His people. I am sick of your sacrifices and offerings. What are you all thinking when you come before me to worship so meaninglessly? Quit your charades and pretensions. I can't stand your religious services and meetings and your holy day gatherings. I'm ignoring your performances of prayers, no matter how loud or long you pray. Do you know why? Because you then go and tear other people into pieces. Listen, clean up your act and stop doing evil. Learn to do good work for justice, raise up the oppressed, stand up for the downtrodden, defend the defenseless. Yet that generation did not change their ways. It became worse so that a few generations afterwards, the book of Jeremiah speaks out again with this message. God is telling his people this, Stop saying, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. It will not protect you. Change and treat your neighbors right. Stop exploiting people around you, the people who have no one to rely on. Stop worshipping the false gods that let you do this. Then I will let you live here and use my name for your worshipping place. As it is, you all participate in stealing and murdering, lying and cheating on your spouses, and then you stand here thinking that your religious membership that bears my name gives you the license to do these things and get away with it. But I am real, and I am watching, and you will not be protected forever. But these messages 
again were ignored. Traditions say the prophet Isaiah was executed by being sawed in half. Jeremiah was thrown into the pit to die, only to be saved when a pagan empire that God has brought as a judgment on his people destroyed their city and their temple to God. And by the time that Jesus was born, centuries later, nothing had really changed. Foreign empire ruled over God's people. Oppression, tyranny, inequality, and injustice weighed upon their world. A shrewd but cruel and murderous king ruled over them, though he tried to appease the people by building them another grand temple to God's name. And the hypocrisy and corruption ran rampant among the ones who should represent God, the religious leaders and teachers the very leaders who would become the primary foes of Jesus Christ during his ministry. The story of Christmas begins with God's people on the edge of despair. They are lost, and their religiosity did not help. Sometimes they were merely a poisonous mask to cover the fact that they were lost. And they were saying, maybe it's too late already. If so, we deserve it. Up against this sentiment, though, was another message in the Bible, one that was presented in a book also written by Jeremiah and appropriately titled Lamentations. It begins with a lament, a people sitting amidst the ashes. They realize what they had been and what they could have been and what they lost. They are bereft, bitter, afflicted, brokenhearted. Then the prophet says, yet they still have hope. Why? What he says has been put into a song today, which goes like this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. Great is thy faithfulness. And the key part of the idea here is that no one is denied the chance to redeem themselves. That is never too late. And when you feel hopeless about yourself, there is one that hasn't given you up. That reality unfolds a way forward to those who want to make things right again. Or in the original Christian terms, God responds with mercy toward those who want redemption, even if all things may seem lost now. And the story of Christmas is that this hope was answered. It begins with people who's afraid redemption is beyond them. They don't hope for Santa Claus. They expect only Krampus forever. Then one early morn they wake up and find the gift they most wanted. A gift that told them they're still worth the whole world, caringly wrapped, placed by their bedsides. For when our story was at its darkest, a child was born. This child was one through whom God would reveal a new path for the lost, a way forward to a world that can be what we hope it to be. But we won't just magically find ourselves there. It begins step by step from where we are, the place where we are lost. And our steps forward is enabled by the one who on Christmas morning is still just a newborn baby, fragile, vulnerable, and seemingly insignificant, born from a young girl who was nearly killed for bearing a child before being married and accompanied by her carpenter husband. She gave birth while traveling, and no one was willing to let them stay in their home, so the child was born in the stables and laid in a food trough for the livestock. Yet this is how reality is structured, or in the original Christian terms, how God acts and unfolds his story. 
a way forward for the lost, their salvation, will not be found from those at the top of the structures of power, otherwise they would have made our world better already, or even by the revolutionaries wanting to upend it only to become the same sort of people themselves afterwards. The path to salvation begins humbly, small and fragile, seed planted in the ground. There it will grow unnoticed, but grow it shall. And those who will see it, those blessed to be where the seed fell, will be like the earthly parents of Jesus, those who do what they are able where they are placed. A young girl promising to believe God and raise the child the best she can in the face of adversity and uncertainties. A laborer who is moved by God to take in a girl about to be condemned by the society as his family and her child as his own. And what that child will bring about will need to be told some other time. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoy this content and want to hear more, please subscribe, follow, and share. And I hope you'll join me next time for the fourth episode. God, science, the universe, and the flying spaghetti monster. Until then, I will be waiting here.